and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come on by, check us out. There's a new G file up. It is currently for subscribers only. Um, if only I had contacts within the organization um, that would let me bring it out from outside the paywall. Um, I got to say, I'm starting to. For I'm not exactly sure why. Maybe it's just the rhythm of the week. Um, maybe it's the nitrogen bubbles in my blood. But I find that Wednesday's G file is easier. To write and i like the final product better than the friday stuff so anyway come check it out if you can um on to the show at hand i'm very excited to have uh one of my absolute favorite people in the world back on um she is i believe a five-timer at this point we got to go check the books um it'd be weird if she weren't um and uh i the last time i introduced her as uh, which is the way I've referred to her for years as lovely and talented. And um, I got all sorts of dumb Karen feminist blowback for, for otherizing her or something. And I <laughs> don't care for, I think she's lovely and talented. So we have AB Stoddard, associate editor at real clear politics and a columnist over there as well. And a uh, fellow dog lover. Uh, AB, welcome back. It's wonderful to be with you, Jonah. Um, isn't DC in August, just divine. Yeah. <laughs> I thought of you immediately this morning when I checked my phone and saw the humidity was 96%. And then when I let, went outside to the yard with a dog, I felt the Vaseline encasing my limbs um, as I made my way through the grass. And it, I, we haven't had one of those breakthrough days where it's clear and it cleanses your soul and gives you hope to hold on in yeah. so long. Yeah. Usually one pops in and tells you September will come. But so, alas, I am. Um, we had some at the beginning of the summer these yes. days. And I, I would, I would always tell people cherish this day. Cause this could be the last one of these before 2022, <laughs> you know? And, um, uh, and it's like when we got off the plane back from California on Tuesday night, it was just so depressing to get to leave the airport and walk into, you know, the 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 sweatpant crotch fog that <laughs> engulfs the entire DC region. <laughs> um and uh um and it's weird. I was like sitting with my wife. We were we had, we were in actually in Malibu. We had like three hours, five hours to kill before my daughter's plane showed up because she had to fly separately for dumb reasons. And um, we're sitting in this perfectly nice, not super fancy, not super clever, whatever, not super California, but this nice little sort of outdoor mall area and an outdoor place having a beer and some fried calamari. And it was like 82 degrees, but in the shade, it was comfortable and cool out. And and we, it was like, I was like, you know, I think that our, that Lucy, my daughter, just thinks I don't like sunshine because I'm always miserable whenever she sees me in it. And it's not fair. It's actually just DC's climate because like California, that dry desert, you know, Southern California thing, it's, it's eminently civilized. It's just the politics there suck. Yes. I 
like you every time I go there because I, I've, I, I sort of slightly grew up there since my parents split up when I was six and my dad moved out there and I spent every summer, the whole summer there. Wow. And then a whole bunch of Christmases and spring breaks. I always, you know, get the, the tugs about the weather um, and how wonderful it is. But my thing is not the politics, immediately the traffic yeah. drops me out of my bubble and I go right back to, I can live, I can go home now uh, and live there because it, it's changed so much um, it, it, in at least Los Angeles and the surrounding area since I was a little girl. And it's just, it's just prohibitive. Yeah, no, it's funny because that's that's sort of where uh, my wife, the fair Jessica, which I hope the feminists don't get mad at me for calling my wife of 20 years the fair Jessica. Um, but uh, the traffic thing is just like a deal breaker for her. And I I, 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 I mean, I agree it, it stinks, but I'm enough of a hermit that like I won't have to get in the car to go anywhere. And um, but I just marvel the fact, you know, you're on like I-5 and 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 the 405 and it's, you know, six lanes all going the same way and they still manage to get bumper to bumper traffic. I mean, <laughs> how much more capacity could they, and the amazing thing is this, this exact conversation is why people listen to this podcast is they want <laughs> two spoiled East coast brats <laughs> in middle age complaining uh, about LA traffic where they don't actually live. Um, <laughs> that's your spot on demo. It really is. <laughs> it, it nailed it. Um, at that and the, the, untucked shirt uh <laughs> market and hey look i like i like untucked shirts i have many of them and we're happy when they sponsor this podcast but it's like it's on brand let's just say that um okay so uh i'm going to offer a confession which a pundit is not supposed to do about something so weighty and all that kind of stuff i have a very tar- hard time following and sometimes caring even though i do think it's important the infrastructure stuff um, particularly because it's sort of like, um, you know how it's hard to commit to a project when you know your boss is going to change everything at the last minute anyway. So like why put in your best effort? Exactly. Uh, following it, knowing that the whole thing could blow up, that it probably will blow up or at the very least it will be very different than any straight line projection from at any moment during the process. It gets really hard to start caring about the minutia of the, 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 the procedure, the procedure, procedural stuff. So, but you do this for a living and I, it has to do with some version of original sin or some crime you committed in a past, <laughs> past life. So why don't we start with you just sort of explaining where we are and then in the infrastructure, who would you much call it? And then um, I will have follow-up questions from there. So I, like you, tend to duck out on a lot of these things. Um, I could not be bothered with the California recall until it was connected for me that Larry Elder, um, if sitting as governor of California, could appoint someone to replace Dianne Feinstein if she, for some reason, for health reasons, stepped out of her seat and then that would put into play um, a whole new majority and the Supreme court and everything. So it just, Senator Hugh Hewitt is my guess. 
maybe it just became interesting overnight to me. Yeah. Like I was totally tuning out. I don't want to think about Gavin Newsom or California politics or recall elections ever again. But that was sort of an interesting turn of events. So the infrastructure stuff is so critical to the politics of the midterm elections. And that's why I, I'm so fascinated by it. I think the House um, is definitely going to flip. It's just we're now in a, in a universe where we're looking at uh, you know, Kevin McCarthy having a four seat majority or a 36 seat majority or something really big. So um, it's all about uh, this this division in the Democratic Party that was delayed for a long time, um, effectively, I think, by the White House team um, and is now just sort of broken open. And um, we're at this weird moment after the high stakes, um, you know, late night negotiations and pizza eating um, in the House the other night, where the moderates have been given some sort of like fake deal, which is, you know, like what Congress can do, where they got a date where they're going to get to vote on the standalone, enormously popular, 70% of Americans approve, transportation project only, real infrastructure bill that exists in language has been passed by the Senate with support of Republicans and could pass the House and be signed by the president tomorrow and be a huge win for the president and his party. And instead is being held hostage to the massive $3.5 trillion, what they call human wealth, a uh, human uh, uh, infrastructure, which is the social welfare programs, which all the voters keep hearing and listeners keep hearing about is the reconciliation package. Right. Because right. that's the name for the process they're going to use to smoosh it through without a Senate, uh, without a filibuster majority um, in the Senate of 60 votes, which is required of all legislation except for these special budget um, bills, which get to go by 50 votes under the use of, or 51 under the use of reconciliation. So they're trying to literally create this mother of all bills that is price tagged at 3.5 trillion, but is truly five. And they're trying to put their whole kind of policy agenda into this quote, human infrastructure package on climate and education and elder care and, and every, Medicare expansion to include hearing aids and, and dental and vision and on and on. And, and so the kitchen sink package is now what's holding back the very popular infrastructure, real infrastructure package, which is done. And the reconciliation kitchen sink package doesn't exist yet and is going to take months. And it is the priority of the progressives who say, we will not vote for the transportation bill unless you vote at the very same time for our bill. And this has been sort of neutralized for the moment by Nancy Pelosi this week with this promise to the moderate and centrist Democrats that they will get a vote on the infrastructure, the transportation bill on September 27th. But really, what does that mean? I mean, in late September, is she going to put a standalone vote up if the reconciliation package isn't done, which it will not be? And then what's going to happen? The progressives will vote against it because they'll say, no, this has to be two-tracked. They have to happen simultaneously. Will you, will you see 24 Republicans who want to support that package but will never vote for the big kitchen sink package? Will you see them come up and actually support 
the transportation bill. And is that enough to overcome what is not the squad, what is not a new squad of five people, but a 100 strong progressive caucus that will get most of their members, I think, to commit to that promise to block it. So I don't see that the moderates got a concession is my point. I don't see that they actually get a vote at the end of September and move the the transportation bill to the president's desk. So Bernie Sanders, who God bless him for the veterans provisions he passed with John McCain that, you know, were very effective, has never been behind the wheels of a, a, the steering wheel of a bus of this legislative um, scale and scope and size, is now in charge of this whole thing. He's running around the country going to places like Iowa and Indiana to sell it to Trump voters because he thinks it's really popular to tax the rich to pay for these things. And he thinks that he's going to be like this populist salesman for the thing. And there's a piece in Politico today, which is basically a threat. He says that he doesn't want the moderates to trim the package like Senators Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin have joined with House moderates to, to threaten. I mean, it has to, they, say the, they say the price tag has to go down. Um, Bernie Sanders says, no, it's already too small. We wanted six to 10 trillion. Like this is like a total concession already. And as I said, it, it really equals in federal fuzzy math, like around five, it's not really 3.5 trillion. So it's a me, it's a huge mess. I have no idea how it is going to be reconciled, but you, you see this hesitance on the part of the frontliners the the swing district Democrats who saw a bunch of their colleagues defeated in the 2020 election, you see a hesitance on their part. You kept hearing on Monday about these nine holdouts, these nine that were threatening Pelosi. They were going to vote against the rule, these nine centrists. Well, there's actually dozens and dozens of them, but there's a real tension in the House right now where those Democrats don't feel like they can be seen as fighting with the progressives because they, you know, they won't get donations and they they won't they'll make leadership mad and and they're really vulnerable and those are the ones that put the house in play not um congresswoman jaipal and ayanna presley and you know aoc and the lot right those are the majority makers those are the frontline democrats who did not run on the largest tax crease in american history they, they did not and so there's just I mean, you can tell what side I'm on. I mean, you know, there, there's a real, um, in order to to keep the progressives happy, um, they could tank this this actual win that would help protect their frontliners, you know, give a win to Joe Biden um, in order to pass this giant thing, which will be unpopular with swing voters and which will not bring out low propensity Black, brown, and young voters who don't turn out in midterms anyway will not turn them out next year to save the House majority, even if they pass this thing. That's delusional. So that's the politics. It's sort of the midterm politics of of the infrastructure fight. Okay, so that was very helpful for me. It it renders some of my previous punditry null and void, um, which is too bad. But um, <laughs> um, uh, all right. So uh, so a couple quick follow up questions. First of all, if I have if, if I have it right, Pelosi got the gave this this uh, uh, the mod consent, squad 
the well, the concession to the moderates, right? That yeah. they would get a standalone vote on the thing, and you say that the the forget the squ- forget the squad, right? The the progressive caucus, which is large, right, um, will vote against it on procedural grounds, saying no, no, no. Both the traditional infrastructure and the human infrastructure have to pass together. Is giving the mods at least their vote on that? beneficial to them in running for re-election or we'll just get lost in the noise of everything no it helps them they they can be for that um but then they're supposed to also support the other package right and 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 if not but um, so but the but i mean the reconciliation thing requires all 50 senators to vote for it plus kamala harris right and right, which is why we've anticipated all along that the price tag will come down, and you will see Mansion and Cinema on board. Um, what? So I mean, but but so when Bernie says it can't go to go any lower, that's just BS negotiating stuff, right? Because if it came down to one point five trillion extra, he'd still vote for it, right? Right. And, and I think I, right. And I think that I can't envision what happens after the vote. I can't imagine what Elizabeth Warren and Cori Bush are going to do to bash the centrists. Are they going to say, this is a great victory? Are they going to say it really should have been bigger? And, you know, we were so sorry that it's a wimpy package, but our, you know, frontliners sold us out. I, I, I don't know how well the White House, um, a is functioning these days. Yeah. Um, how well they can they can keep everyone on the same song sheet in victory if if should they have one, um, it will come down. Uh, I I I yeah. I just don't know if the progressives after it's over, when they feel they have nothing else to lose, will sort of stay in open war against the centrists um, or if they'll, you know, be in kumbaya mode. That's, that's really, um, that's, that's a concern right now among the moderate Democrats is they're being sold out by the White House, who's not backing them up. The White House has never met with the new Democrat um coalition the you know the new democrat um caucus which is you know as big as the progressive caucus um since they've been in office that the, the there's a lot of frustration among the the swing democrats that um they're not being heard and they're not being prioritized and um that that they um i mean they're scared to they're scared to to, to vote for the reconciliation bill and then still be hung out to dry in campaigns. Right. Um, so, so that's the, if you, I guess if they can trim it down, cross the finish line and keep everyone quiet, that would be good for them. So I just, I understand that AOC and that crowd are louder than the moderate crowd. And I don't mean it like in some pejorative way. I just mean that, their megaphones are bigger, partly because of media, partly because of better savviness with social media, um, partly because they're much more passionate activists for a cause kind of thing. And they, so when they say, you know, 
for want of a less pejorative extreme things, you know, that gets attention in the media saying, hey, we got to live within our means and blah, blah, blah. That doesn't get attention in the media. So they're just louder in um, um, in, in a, just a descriptive sense. At the same time, I explain to me why it is so hard for moderate Democrats to be loud about their moderation, particularly in the House. I mean, in the Senate, I think it's a little easier um, because their constituency is the whole state and the whole state is in a lot of states that are purple or even, you know, certainly red. It's very easy for them to be vocal about their moderation. But even there, they're not nearly as vocal as you might think. What 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 is the punishment that the party or the voters have against being a raging moderate in the Democratic Party? And if you if you serve in Ohio or Indiana or you know one of these kinds of states, well, you know we've talked about this before, Jonah. That the it's the same in the Republican Party, right? You're captive to a base that's probably a minority of the party, but it's the loudest. Now they've moved in to dominate the small dollar fundraising. You know structure i mean it, it's 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 still it's a threat right so it's just it's 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 a mirror image of the gop thing there's not a different no 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 it's, it's not on? it's not exact but it you know it's sort of it, it's sort of, it, it's they share this problem right the two mm-hmm. parties so especially the class of 18 they come in they're like these total national security like boffo patriot really impressive candidates they take the house back um it, it, you know they're they're heroes and then they're they were a, a t- like a top priority of Nancy Pelosi's throughout 19 and 20 and then a bunch of them lost and and my view is that Nancy Pelosi's like quasi given up on them because mm-hmm. she's quasi but she, because she believes that they're going to lose the house no matter what and i think at the end of her career she wants to go out like in good favor with progressives um, and that, so that's a shift that I notice. Um, the, you are right. Not only are the Senate moderates not up this year, but as a very smart Democrat put it to me, th- they can always kind of define themselves through the media because they're senators more easily mm-hmm. and protect their, themselves that way. Whereas you're, you know, Alyssa Slotkin is very popular from Michigan. She's, she's, been in the news a lot. But if you're just Mickey Sherrill or Abby Spamberger from New Jersey and Virginia, you know, you're, you're, and you're there to do work and you don't want to really be a congressional Kardashian who's like always trying to find a way to get on the news. You, you don't really have a means to, um, to, to juice fundraising dollars and, um, kind of push back against all that stuff without maybe technically, like I said, sort of falling out of favor and harming yourself politically, um, bottom line. So you just go home, do all your constituent work and try to keep your head down. But you know, after the 2020 elections, there was a real um, come to blows uh, in, in the conference um, about defund the police and how, you know, and, and the socialism stuff and how the moderates, um, you know, felt like they were trying to warn before election day and, and they, you know, a bunch of them ended up losing because of that stuff. And for a while that was heard. You heard Jim Clyburn before the Georgia runoff saying, if we talk about defunding the police, we will lose those two Georgia races. This is not where we are. We like the police, you know, this, this kind of thing. 
But we've been waiting all year, right? Our people have been, you know, speculating that Joe Biden would have this sister soldier moment and push back on progressives. And um, he doesn't do it. And Bernie has been given a lot of running room. That's why the piece today in Politico, it, it does sound like a threat um, about the price tag. And yeah, I think you're right that in the end, they're going to have to back down and get something and something's better than nothing. But um, they were, they've been sort of, these two flanks have been like openly fighting with each other like on Twitter in a way that shows it's sort, of, it's sort of a new level of like open hostility where the progressives, I don't know, think that, that they, um, they're not dominant in the, in the electorate. They're not dominant in the democratic party. They don't um, flip swing districts. They simply make blue districts more blue. Um, but right now there's, I mean, this is a, this is a perfect example. Hakeem Jeffries, the sort of uh, supposed heir apparent to the speakership, has joined with Josh Gottheimer, who leads the moderates, mm -hmm. to form a pack to fend off like the Justice Democrats and these left-wingers, progressives, quote-unquote, from primarying incumbents in these Democratic districts. Uh, so th th it's a real fight below the surface that for some reason moderates feel um, they're outflanked on, as you know, they don't have activists on their side. They might be outflanked in fundraising and social media profile. And so they're putting their head down and, and doing battle, you know, quietly. And it's, it's, it's ridiculous because the Democratic Party is still what it was last year. It is still more moderate than it is progressive. In terms of the voters? Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, so I, I, what I'm getting at is, so it would, it seems to me, you know, if you're, if you didn't know all the stuff in the weeds and the internal dynamics of fundraising and what kind of issue sets you need to get reelected in this district or that district, and instead you just took, a step back and you looked at the brand of the democratic party um or for that matter the brand of the republican party it is in it strikes me as in the interests of both parties to have a more diluted brand let's put it that way than a very concentrated brand concentrated brand i mean i hate talking about brands in general but you know it's like um you know chipotle needs a very tight brand it has made to order <laughs> burritos and bowls. That's what it does. It's like years ago, I used to go, you probably remember this place. Uh, I don't, I doubt you, you went, but there was a place in DC called burrito brothers. Uh huh. And, uh, in the 1990s when I was, uh, uh, you know, this is, you know, now, uh, 25 years and 50 pounds ago. Um, I ate a lot at burrito brothers and, and one day a friend of mine got the tacos. And I was like, dude, tacos? <laughs> like, how are they? And he goes, eh, let me put it this way. There's a reason they're called Burrito Brothers and not Taco Brothers. <laughs> and that became a shorthand in this television company that I worked in about staying in your lane and doing what we're good at and not like trying to do everything. But there are some brands that want to appeal to like weird cross sections of people. 
And they're not narrow brands. They're broad brands like Johnson and Johnson. It does band-aids and it, it does, I don't know, orbital death rays. It does a lot of things. And, um, and so my point is, is like, there are a lot of people who would be inclined to vote Democrat if the brand of the democratic party was more capacious of and tolerant of moderates and even sort of, you know, sort of, uh, conservative on a lot of it, you know, on tax and spend kind of issues, kind of things, sort of conservative independence you could see. And likewise with the Republican party, if the brand weren't so focused at, particularly at the national level on sort of Trumpiness and that kind of thing, there are a lot of people who want to vote for the Republican party. And it used to be that like the Republican and democratic parties, because of the regional differences in the country, understood the need to keep the brand a little loose. You know, it's sort of like the Catholic church isn't the Opus Dei church. That's one strand within a broader universal Catholic church that wants lots of people to be in the church. And then they can have an argument with them about how good or bad they are at being Catholic. The, and so it just seems to me in the democratic party's own interest, which is a point that Clyburn sort of gropes at, to signal that you don't have to like AOC to be a Democrat, right? That you don't have to like Bernie Sanders to be a Democrat. And um, nor should you, and that, like personally, I think the, the GOP should send the signal that if you hate Paul Gosar, it's okay to be, a, you know, it's okay in the Republican Party. Um, but that's a different topic. Um, and yet, you get no sense from Nancy Pelosi or Democratic leadership that this is a serious marketing idea about the party. Every now and then when asked a pointed direct question in a press conference, Nancy says, oh, we have a very diverse caucus with people with different points of view and blah, 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 blah. But the actual messaging of what, what the party stands for, what it's willing to fight for, what hills it's willing to die on, it signals that it's a very left-wing party 95% of the time. And, and the GOP signals that it's a Trumpy party 94% of the time or whatever. Um, is this just more of my obsession with weak parties or is there, is there, is there a reason? What is the reason why this is smart for people who make do this stuff for a living to continue doing it when it seems dumb from the outside, from outside the fishbowl where I am? Well, I always like to give Nancy Pelosi credit on this one thing, which is that she has faced down the squad on anti-Semitic like mm -hmm. BS talk. And she threw them under the bus at APAC. And, and for that, look, the Democrats police their extremes better than Republicans. They just do. Do they do a good enough job? No. But once in a while, they try. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to give credit where credit's due. You know, it's, it's not enough, but it's something for Jim Clyburn to occasionally say stuff like that. Yeah. And for Nancy Pelosi to go to APAC and throw a bunch of people, you know, brand new members in her in her in her caucus under the bus on a world stage is a pretty big deal to me. But yes, in the day-to-day -day talk about spending and socialism and um, their, their tolerance of, of, you know, cancel culture and, and all that stuff, there's a lot of looking the other way and pretending it's not going on um, or, you know, championing, um, you know, a lot of the, you know, diversity, inclusivity and all that stuff. Um, instead of saying, we want to appeal to everybody, we want to 
talk to people, to Americans who voted for President Obama and then President Trump, and we want them to hear us. We want to solve their problems, not tell them what they need and, 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 and tell them, you know, what Bernie's saying, which is, you know, there's a, the, the, it's time to reorder the economy and all, and all this, you know, quote, bold stuff. So um, I think that a lot of it does go back to stuff that, you know, opinions that we share and stuff we've talked about for a long time, which is that what the parties tend to do is try to reach those Republicans who would have been much happier if Mike Pence was president, who, you know, are in the mold of Rob Portman or whatever, who couldn't abide Trump and thought he was trying to break our system, you tr- that you try to reach those people quietly. And that the Dem- the DNC and the DCCC try to reach out and, and market like the American Rescue Plan and all the COVID progress that the administration was making until, you know, four weeks ago. Until it's Quietly, <laughs> right? That you go to the Midwest and you do that. I think that, that that's what the parties tend to do because they are still afraid of those microphones that people on the far left and right have on social media and um and they watch things like AOC's just incredible platform and Marjorie Taylor Greene's fundraising prowess and they feel like they have to, you know, um factor that in to to their um their narrative. And so Again, it's it, you can look at all the data, and you and I have you know looked at David Shore and all this. We absolutely know that the progressives are going to be furious next year, no matter what. Nothing will be pure enough for them. There won't be enough, you know, climate reversal. There won't be enough uh, uh, of anything. There won't be enough spending. Um, there won't be enough safety net stuff, and 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 they're not going to come out in the midterms and thank Joe Biden and and vote at presidential cycle numbers to save the house. And so at this point for survival's sake alone, it's just stupid for them not to come out and, 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 and appeal to the middle. And, and again, Jonah, I think the strategy is not that you're inspiring anyone. The realistic strategy for Democrats next year is not that they're inspiring anyone to vote. It's to, to keep that voter who might have voted, did not vote at presidential at the top of the ticket last year, but voted down ballots for Republicans or voted for Biden and also voted down ballot for Republican from getting mad enough to turn out and vote down ballot Republican in a midterm year mm-hmm. next year. That should be the strategy is that you pass police reform with Tim Scott and you dump the progressives on qualified immunity and you get the transportation bill over the finishing line, very popular, and you market that and, and you keep enough voters saying, you know what, they're not great, but they're not as socialist as they, you know, as they roar and bark about. They got some real legislating done in, in a Congress that doesn't legislate anymore. And the COVID thing's not entirely Biden's fault because the unvaccinated are trying to break the healthcare system. Oh, well, I'll be busy that day. <laughs> That's the strategy. But if you poke the bear with enough of this crap, you're going to get a bunch of people voting Republican who hate Trump. So, I mean, I, I mean, I, I could stay on this for a bit, but we should probably move on to, to other stuff. But it just, 
it's fascinating to me. I mean, maybe it's because I spent my my early years in Washington working for this guy Ben Wattenberg, who was like one of the original um, founders of the Coalition for Democratic Majority, which became the DLC, and you know all those people like Al Fromm and Elaine K. Mark, who I was much more you know I wasn't a Democrat. I was a was much more conservative than Ben, but his obsession was dragging the the Democratic Party to the center. And he wrote, you know, The Real Majority, and he wrote all these books about it. And I always found the arguments incredibly persuasive. <laughs> and, you know, and then Clinton basically did that. He ran as this guy who was going to run against, who basically ran against the base of his party. And he won two terms as a popular president. And if he could stop playing Baron and the Milkmaid with the interns, he would have, you know, <laughs> gone down in history pretty well. And, um, um, and it just seems sort of obvious to me that that the path out for the Democratic Party to become a to stop being a moon party and become a sun party is to basically follow the lead of people like Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema, who I have my disagreements with. But like that's much closer to where the median Democrat is, never mind the median voter. And and it's so funny, I was talking to Josh Krauschauer about this recently, you know, there are just people in democratic politics these days who understand what the smart political move is, but refuse to do it for like woke ideological moral grounds. And, and, you know, if you had told me 25 years ago that what the democratic party desperately needs is more people like Rahm Emanuel, I would have thought you were crazy, but that's exactly what the democratic party needs is needs, needs dudes who swim moats with knives in their teeth. And, and is willing, are willing to put conservative Democrats up in districts that would never vote for a liberal Democrat. And the party just doesn't seem interested in doing what's in its own self-interest. And I just find it fascinating. Yeah, I think it's so interesting because what you're saying about growing the party is obviously that's the only way, right, to grow it out to the center and make it more broad, dilute the brand, bigger tent, and 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 try to, try to at least hold on to these suburban voters that they got probably temporarily, but they have a real shot at keeping if they, you know, if they walked the right walk and talked the right talk, but legislatively in these, in this Congress with no margins, no margins, no margin in the Senate and a three seat majority in the house. I'm not like a James Carville, you know, disciple by any stretch, but he said, we can't be more liberal than Joe Manchin. We, we can't. So really just wake up every day and just understand that, right? That it's, it, it, you can scream and you can wail, but you can't get stuff through without him. So right. why all the screaming and wailing, let alone the future of the party, which almost lost this last election um, in the White House and barely has the Senate. And I was like, how are you going to grow the vote? It's it's so crazy, but to your to your point about um, being woke and canceled, uh, being th threat of cancellation. Um, one of the most fascinating. I'm obsessed with the voting rights thing because I think the Democrats are completely on the wrong track. Mm -hmm. And I was having this conversation with a progressive Democratic woman um, of color, and who's in this space who said, um, you, if you point out to the Democrats that HR1 and S1, the For the People Act, is, doesn't address the real problems that 
It's really about vote counting, not vote casting. It's not voter suppression. It's vote. It's vote. It's election nullification. Right. It, it's it's literally that it's subversion. It's that the new laws in Georgia and 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 Texas, these places, will allow the penalization, the 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 criminalizing of of like normal official election acts, and to the point where they can just they can just select the ballots that they want and kick out the ones they don't want. But if you say that, if you say that now, like I do on MSNBC and everyone gets mad at me on Twitter, if you say that as a, like an, if I'm, I'm not in the party, I'm not, I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not, you know, but if you, if you are in their universe and you try to say, Hey guys, I think the problem here is a constitutional crisis. We can get around like a limited number of drop boxes or weeks to request absentee ballots. And we don't need to talk about water bottles. Everyone freaks out because they want to make it. How, how are they, how are those voters going to feel when Stacey Abrams gets them out and their vote is cast and then not counted? Yeah. So, but it's like, that's not the cool thing to talk about right now. Right. No, I think, I mean, one of the hardest things to say to, to understand, I think about the political moment in some ways, is and I have to be delicate about this because if it's quoted out of context, it'll sound very strange. Um, so you are allowed to repudiate me for even the misinterpretation. Um, in a weird way, the people most desperate to live in Jim Crow America these days aren't racist Republicans. They're progressive Democrats in the sense that they want to be these noble warriors against an oppressive regime they want to be the freedom riders of today. And so they interpret, you know, uh, getting rid of drive 24 hour drive through voting in Houston as the same thing as sicking police dogs and fire hoses on people trying to register to vote. And they're just not the same thing. You know, it was like people, you're not Alexander Solzhenitsyn by sending $50 to AOC. But people want to see themselves as like these rebels against the, you know, we saw this under, you know, we saw all of this stuff under, you know, George W. Bush during the Iraq war where these people were convinced, you know, with the, you know, they're coming for the libraries and all this kind of stuff. There's a part of people that wants to live in an oppressive regime to prove how courageous they are for defying it. And it's why you get some of the jackassery we get these days about the anti-mask and anti-vaccine stuff. You know, that what's this guy, that Massey guy, you know, basically <laughs> saying that requiring proof of vaccination is the equivalent of being tattooed in a Nazi, you know, concentration camp. Um, we should just note for editorial purposes that that is batshit crazy and really <laughs> offensive, but they wanted to make themselves sound like they're like heroic people. And um, and so like H.R. One is just bad law. I mean, it's bad law on a whole bunch of different ways. I mean. You know, I mean, again, I, I think federalizing election law is a bad idea. There's just all sorts of things in it that are bad. But as you point out, it's not just that they're bad, it's that they're not addressing the problem that they think there is. I mean, I keep bringing it up. Zoe Lofgren, when she helped introduce HR1, she said, you know, in, in, the 2000, in the 2020 election, we saw historic voter suppression. No, we didn't. You know, like we, saw, we saw the opposite of historic voter suppression, right? It was the biggest turnout in 100 years, biggest turnout in raw numbers ever because we loosened all the laws, rightfully so, for the pandemic and all of that. But like they're 
they're fighting the straw man that they want to fight because they want to say they're against Jim Crow stuff when in reality there are bad things going on with election stuff in this country, but it's not the stuff that they're trying to fix because they're stuck with the old playbook. Um, anyway, and why re- are they, how ahead. are they serving those communities by saying register turnout? They're trying to stop you from voting. And then those people register and turn out and then their vote is cast aside because they're in the wrong County in Georgia. I mean, this is crazy. They have to tell the truth. This is a real threat. And they're not speaking about it because they want it. They, it, it, it's just as I, I just. No, I agree. I, and it's also just, just, I want to point out because I, I think we obsess about racism in this country and, and this is like literally the most successful, least racist major nation in the world or in the history of the world. I mean, maybe Belgium does great things and, you know, we can say a nice word about Canada, but the progress that we make about we've made on race in this country has been history defying. And it's just worth pointing out that like for all the stuff we get from Stacey Abrams about how Jim Crow, this and Jim Crow that, you know, as my colleague, Tim Carney put it the other day, I noted the other day, if you actually look at the migration numbers in the, in the, in the census, the places where black and brown people are moving to in the highest numbers are allegedly these States that are full of racist oppression and Jim Crow. It's Texas, it's Florida. Um, it's like North Carolina. Um, and they're not all fools for doing that is they understand that, you know, whatever bad things Republicans may or may not be doing in this state or that state about voting. These are not like places where the average suburban white family is going to sell their house and move if a black family moves in because we've just made enormous racial progress in this country. And it's, it's something that, you know, no one wants to say because it's, because well, there are a bunch of reasons why Republicans don't want to say it, and there are a bunch of reasons why Democrats don't want to say it. And they're not the same reasons. But we should move on in the time we have left to a couple, to one other serious thing, and then obviously the most important thing, which is your puppy. Um, um, while we were talking, or while I was monologuing, uh, we got the message that uh, an explosion happened outside of the air ba- uh, the, the the airport in Kabul no word on how bad it was and all this kind of thing. And all we can say is we hope it wasn't bad, but um, at the very least, it's got to be terrifying if you're there. Um, so more broadly, um, and I, I just don't want to talk more about an explosion that neither of us know anything about um, because we've been doing this, but I wanted to acknowledge it. So more, but more broadly, um, where do you come down on the, I mean, I, Forget the. We, I'm, I'm happy to hear, know what you what you think about withdrawing from Afghanistan or how you think he executed it. But what do you think the politics of it are going forward? Um, is this an albatross or is really COVID the thing? I mean, all the pollsters seem to say that the COVID stuff is really what's dragging his approval and not Afghanistan. Where do you come down on all that? I think the Afghanistan um, withdrawal. Um, again, I don't agree with the substance. I'm kind of with you, but not on substance, on management of the process is mm-hmm. a debacle. Uh, it's, it's tragic. Um, and, and it is, it, it's so politically injurious to Joe Biden because he was both empathetic, decent, and competent as the candidate who won the election. And they seem to have, and I don't think credibly, I don't think it's credible that they both overestimated the strength of the Taliban's territorial gains in the months before August at the same time that they were 
overestimating the, 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 um, I'm sorry, they overestimated the strength of the Taliban, of the Afghan forces while underestimating the strength of the Taliban at the same time. It's just, it's not, it's not credible the Mm -hmm. way they spoke about the Afghan, um, forces being able to stand up when they knew that they couldn't. I mean, all of this is, is just, and then, and then you couple that with, so they, so they did a bad job of before the withdrawal date, they do a bad job starting with the withdrawal and the evacuations. And then president Biden comes out and in the most unseemly way is so intensely critical of the Afghans who have been thrown under the bus. And it's just on every level is just everything. It was just off brand, right? Mm-hmm. It was everything that Joe Biden was not supposed to be. Um, and, uh, that, that I think is really, it's really harmful to him politically, to his approval, because it was so closely tied with the traits that he, um, seemed to be, uh, popular with Americans for having, uh, but stepping back, it is COVID COVID is, is an umbrella over everything. His numbers were going down with independence before Afghanistan and the numbers were going down because people three months ago were ebullient and hopeful and positive and vaccinated. And now everything's gone to crap because of the Delta variant and because of these ass wipes um, who are literally intentionally allowing this to spread and then saying that hospital beds are for unvaccinated COVID patients while cancer patients have to wait in the parking lot. I mean, this is just, this is disgusting. And it's enraging, but it's on Joe Biden politically that you you perform on the vaccine distribution and then all of a sudden COVID's out of control. You're the president. I mean, I'm sorry, but COVID is like really, really high on the issue uh, on the on the list of issues for voters. And it's number one for Democrats. Mm-hmm. And so that's a real problem for him. I do believe memories are short. New crises come. Uh, the Afghanistan thing won't be as felt as extremely um, in months from now, um, but uh, it's going to be a mess there, and um, and they have to really handle the refugee resettlement thing extremely carefully and create a strong narrative about that that's bipartisan with the moral high ground. I worry that Republicans who are pro refugee right now, not Ben Sass and those types, but some sort of in the middle might lose their sentimental feeling um, a month or two from now. But um, if that's positive, American voters will look back if COVID turns around at this time and not uh, be as upset by it as they are right now. Um, yeah, I have to think that, it, you know, again, we don't, my, my texts are blowing up about this bombing. Uh, but um, regardless of how that plays out, I I felt for a while that his poll numbers in September, which is, I think, important to keep in mind because that's when apparently all this legislative work is going to be done on the reconciliation thing and all the rest, are going to be terrible in part because there's we're going to have, I mean, it's, again, I hate doing these sort of punditry and scorecards on things like terror attacks and and what what's happening in Afghanistan but you know rank punditry is you know is what we're here for today and <laughs> and uh, you help make it smell a little sweeter um but um the 
you're going to have people going back to school. And if things go well for a lot of places, I don't know that Biden gets a huge amount of credit for it, but any place where things go poorly, it is going to heighten people's anxiety and anger about the status quo in ways that other political issues don't. Right. And, um, there's just something about your kids and school that just flips switches in people's heads, particularly after the last year, which was so awful. Also, I mean, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago. I actually think that there's a different thing going on, which is that if you read Jonathan Haidt and Paul Bloom and these guys, these psychologists that I, I get a lot from, our brains react really weirdly to disease, to the threat of disease, to invisible threats, right? That's why we, we get all sorts of creepy about uh, radiation. Um, it's why like various municipalities out West have to spend m tens of millions of dollars trying to convince people that recycled wastewater is actually safe because no, there's yeah. just something in your brain that says, Wah! right. Um, there's a lot of evidence that says uh, that during times of social turmoil, strangers who smell bad create outsized angry responses from people. And it all, I think, comes from evolutionary psychology where um, we are wired to be hyper-concerned about um, disease, which we don't really understand on a cerebral level. We understand as a lizard brain thing. And it makes people crazy. And that's why you have out-of-control disruptions on planes. You have out-of-control road rage incidents in this country. Yeah. I think a big part of the crime stuff is because of this. I was talking to Steve about this. Like if you drive around the Beltway in DC and stuff, the number of dangerous drivers seems to have really increased. Oh. Um, uh, you have all these stories. I mean, a, a lot of them are anecdotal about one of the reasons why people won't go back to work in retail is because the customers are spitting on them and yelling at them and treating them like garbage. And just everybody, after a year of a pandemic, I think there's a psychological thing that has nothing to do with politics that is just making yeah. people lose their minds. And yeah. you add it all together, I just don't think it's good for Biden. And then... I think we're going to have a hostage or hostage hostages crisis in Afghanistan. There's just no way that somebody, some American, someone with American passport or some family member of American or some really articulate Afghan who worked with Americans isn't going to be paraded in front of a camera as a hostage. And that has Iran, Iran 1979 feelings to it. It, it, and I don't think Biden is up to speed on how to deal with a lot of that stuff. And so it just seems to me that like September and October, the wheels are going to start to come off a little bit, at least polling wise. And I don't think that this administration reacts well to low to bad poll numbers um, in general. They, 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 everyone's a really great messenger when you're really popular. Um, the real test of how good a messenger you are is when people are, um, throwing brickbacks at you. And I, and I don't have the confidence that these guys are up to all that. And so I guess part of the question would be, how does, first of all, do you think I'm right? But B, um, or in what ways do you think I'm right? Because obviously I'm right. Uh, but in B, what, um, let's say Biden's truly underwater going into September and October when all this reconciliation stuff happens. Does that mean he has to be a pushover for progressives? Or does that mean he fights tooth and nail to get something out of it, which would be the traditional infrastructure thing, um, because it's just too much of a lift to do this big tax increase thing and all that? 
Well, the smart thing for him to do would be to sober up. We have to remind the listeners that in September, we're going to be dealing with um, the debt ceiling, fiscal cliff, government shutdown crap, madness, absolute madness with all this stuff. And every, you know, Republicans are going to be, um, do, you know, all the brinksmanship, you know, that they can bring to the table. The, the midterm campaign really starts, you know, a month later or, you know, when we get into <clears throat> October, November, um, the whole legislative window will shut. So this is kind of this last minute scramble. And it's and if De- if, if Biden is smart, <clears throat> he'll sober up and and make sure that they get all those, you know, they fund the government. They don't have a shutdown. They, they, you know, that they raise the debt ceiling and that they get uh, a legislative win somehow on infrastructure. And and I don't know if it's, you know, both deals mushed into one or whatever, but um, that would be this, the smart play. Um, I do think that you're right that um, Americans, because we're feeling so dispirited, don't want tragedy and shame overlaying our anxiety. And that, so the scenes from Afghanistan will be very potent and very compelling in terrible ways. Um, again, we're just talking about how long things last because you and I watched in the age of Trump, the most ghastly things happen that we thought would change the trajectory of the country forever. And I mean, he, he invited the Taliban to Camp David, but no one remembered it because he started getting investigated to be impeached right. like three weeks later. Yeah. So these things happen. Um, the one thing that I will say about the, I have really, I think that I, I want to be on record that every single issue is going the Republicans way from crime to immigration, to inflation, to Afghanistan. Um, it really, um, with the exception of this COVID um, extremism, I do think that, um, and that will play into Biden's approval at some point. There are really interesting numbers on, on mask and vaccine mandates that show that Republican who, Republicans who are vaccinated are angry. Uh, and so that's just interesting that, that intransigence on this issue for DeSantis and Abbott and, and members of Congress who were, you know, dug in or whatever, I don't know what it looks like in February, but um, but that is something that surprised me. We, we say Republicans who are vaccinated are angry. They're angry at DeSantis and the unvaccinated. Yeah. And they're angry at that that there are now um, Republicans in Florida. Uh, DeSantis's numbers, uh, his polling numbers, he's now underwater. I was told on background after my last column about DeSantis that actually his internals are even worse than the public numbers. Hmm. Um, and you. Um, you know, you hear this anecdotally, but it's also in the polling. It, sh- it just shows that the support for mass mandates in, in schools or for, for, or for Republicans to stop trying to block them um, uh, is up at like, you know, 70%. It's really broad. Yeah. And, and so I think that um, you have a new political da- dynamic, which is the, the vaccinated are really angry at the unvaccinated. And, um, and the tiptoeing around and sort of indulgence of them now that there's no hospital beds unless you're a sick, unvaccinated COVID patient. Right. Yeah. No, which I mean, is just completely freaking bananas. I, I, and I, I do think that there's a possibility that some of this, I, I, like, I'm, I'm with you that not being vaccinated at this point is indefensible unless you have a specific medical or religious issue that I, you know, and then we should have a conversation kind of thing. Um, 
I do think that there's there are problems with how this conversation is un- unfolding on the right and in the mainstream media. And in, insofar as, first of all, for example, I think Fauci should stop being a point person because the people he can persuade, he's already persuaded. And fair or not, he pisses off everybody else. Um, and um, if the goal is to actually get people to get vaccinated, you need people who are credible spokespeople with the people who didn't find him credible already. So I don't mean this as a criticism of him necessarily. It's just, it's sort of where we are. They've, they've, they've put up, they've made him a boogeyman. There's also the problem that, that like in gross numbers, the, the biggest problem with the unvaccinated aren't these benighted souls. I'm trying really hard not to call them idiots who are taking in intervectin, whatever that thing is, right. Uh, Deworming. Yeah. Um, it's, it's African-American and Hispanic people in big cities. Um, and uh, there are more of them just because big cities have a lot more people in them than rural people who are taking, you know, a horse dewormer. And, and the, the, the me- I understand why Nicole Wallace or whoever on MSNBC wants to rain holy hell on the Laura Ingram viewers who take that medical advice seriously but there's collateral damage to doing that because the people who are the biggest threat aren't necessarily Republican voters in terms of like the need to get them vaccinated. Um, but more broadly, I guess more narrowly, I now think that the, like this horse dewormer thing, um, um, you know, my colleague David French has been saying for a long time that the problem with the anti-vaccine crowd isn't that their arguments are wrong. It's that they'll keep switching arguments to whatever is left, right? It's whack-a-mole. And the idea that you were holding out getting the vaccine because it didn't get final approval from the FDA, and now you're taking horse dewormer, which has never been approved by the FDA for human use. <laughs> and, and, and will not be. And will not be because... <laughs> it's not pending in the FDA. Yeah. I mean, it's... it's I, there's not... I mean, maybe there's that one guy, like the guy whose stapler keeps getting stolen in office space, who's, <laughs> who's like walking around moving papers saying, hey, you know, maybe we should look at this intervectin thing for horse dewormer or whatever. But no, it's... And I... I don't get it that at this point the demographic that is, I mean, just as a mark, again, this is like a business thing. I don't, let's just assume that at least some of this is driven by a desire to, um, for cable ratings or talk radio ratings or clicks or whatever. Most old people in this country are the people who watch cable news or listen to talk radio. Most of them are now vaccinated. So what is the, I mean, what is the point of continuing with this sort of conspiracy theory garbage about the vaccine when it probably doesn't even work on most of your own audience because they're already vaccinated? I mean, it's, there aren't, all, you know, I don't get it. And so that's why I think I, I need to amend my point. It's it's there is a lot of rage from the vaccinated against the unvaccinated. But leaving that aside, if they can't budge, why do we have to have people insisting that schools be unmasked when it just leads to more spread of infection and then it 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 leads to the virus replicating and then mutating into a variant we're not protected from 
with our current vaccines. That's what makes me crazy. Mm -hmm. And I think it makes a lot of other people crazy. It's just the promotion of the spread. In in Florida, DeSantis is like, please get the Delta variant and then I'm going to find a mobile unit to give you Regeneron. I mean, come on. Yeah, I I, I don't don't know. I, I just can't, I can't with this, with the like fighting mass mandates for little unvaccinated kids in school when his state is literally imploding and hospitals are at capacity in the breaking point with sick and dying COVID patients where if you have a stroke, sorry, you're out of luck. This is just madness to me. I'm I'm largely with you. I've always been neither pro nor anti-mask. You know, um, I think maskophobia and maskophilia are both signs of derangement. Um, but, you know, it's funny. In DC, I mean, like the, the Florida thing is tough because it is so clear to me that DeSantis is considering things outside of public health in, in, in his calculations of all this. I just don't get the political calculations. And, right. um, but then you have the problem, like, among my buddies in Washington, some of whom whose businesses have been devastated by all the lockdowns and whatnot, um, you know, their problem is with, like, um, you know, the, the thing that they keep bringing up is whatever happened to bending the curve. And, um, you know, in, in Florida, right now, they need to bend the curve because the hospitals are overwhelmed, right? In D.C., I think we have, I th- it's somewhere between zero and five COVID cases in the hospital or something like that. I mean, it's a very small number. And yet the mask mandates are all coming back and places are shutting down again and all that kind of thing. There is a feeling out there among some people, and I think there's some merit to it, that the the sort of public health apparatus doesn't want to let go of this thing. Okay, that's a point well taken. And I feel the same way about DC and I live in Maryland and you know, things are largely fine. And, and I think that the the idea of blocking local officials who need to make these decisions based on or should be making the decision based on case count. These are literally schools in counties in Florida where like major numbers of kids are either in quarantine or isolation for a positive test or an exposure and same with the teachers. Come on, man. No, that's, that's, that's totally fair. That's totally fair. I mean, again, my, my, my larger point is that everybody's losing their damn minds and, yes, um, yes. and that cannot be good for the party that controls all three branches of elected I, government. I agree. You know? I agree. All right. So in the moments we have left, uh, um, the last time you were on, you had just gotten uh, chief. Yes. And he was driving you crazy because you had not had a puppy before, um, or at least not <laughs> in recent years. And you were not completely aware of their um, energy usage needs, um, <laughs> I think is a fair way to put it. Uh, um, how old is chief now? How is he doing? He's a he's a he's, he's now a teen sort of golden retriever, right? Right. He just turned six months. He's made so much progress. He's completely different than my old dog and he's darling. And if I might, if I can permit myself to use the, the expression, the, 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 the moniker, the fair Jessica, I was lucky to see you guys for the first time in two years. And she encouraged me to teach him to play fetch. Mm-hmm. So we play fetch outside with the jolly ball and we play fetch inside with the tennis ball. And it is not Pippa 
level fetch. Yeah. So it's not as intense. So it's like the perfect amount where I can really be a good dog mom and do a whole bunch of fetch outside, tire him out. And then inside, I can just sort of roll the tennis ball around and he won't like crash two pieces of large furniture um, in an attempt to catch it and then crash two more on the way back to me and this type of thing. And it won't go on for four hours. So that's been a huge help. Also with the um, empty water bottle in the sock suggestion from Jonah, Mm -hmm. Um, the ultimate crinkle toy. Those have helped. And he's been great. Um, is he done teething? in time for my three children to leave, including my baby child, um, which puts me in the sorry-ass empty nest community with you. Yeah. Um, and um, I'm really glad for Chief. I mean, he's made enough progress that I won't go crazy, but it'll be really a good distraction. Um, is he done teething yet? Yes, pretty much. I mean, now he only... Yes. He really only is bitey when he just is in like super hyper play mode yeah. and he doesn't seem to be the, the, the teething part was actually cooler than I, it's such a trip that they don't even notice what's happening and there's just blood coming out of their mouth and little teeth are on the floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, but, but puppy teeth are sharp. Yes. Um, yes. I have some scars. We, uh, um, we used to give Zoe when she was a puppy and teething a frozen sock. Like you fill up mm-hmm. a sock with water and you just freeze it. Make sure you put it like in a Ziploc bag first. Cause you know, sock runoff water is not great. <laughs> uh, but they like the coldness on the gums helps and they, and they chew on it for a while and you, you know, it, it leads to losing even more socks, but you know, so what's cool. really fun is that my old dog used to turn up his nose at carrots. Mm-hmm. I hated those dog owners who were like, my dog loves carrots and that's why he's not fat. Mm-hmm. But chief, when I run, I, there's only so many calories I can give him per day. And when I run out of, you know, things to amuse him to chew that are peanut butter filled or whatever, um, he, I can now give him carrots and he won't really eat them, but he'll go like chew them apart and then just leave like <laughs> carrot detritus all over the rug. But it's an activity. Yeah. It's healthy. Um, so that was sort of a cool thing that I have a dog that likes carrots. I had, I had a friend years ago who had this giant black lab and she used to take two fingers, put it deep in the jar of peanut butter and then smush it on the roof of the dog's mouth. And, and then the dog would spend the next like hour going to get the peanut butter off the roof of his mouth. Don't. All right, so we had a bizarre little audio crisis, but we think it's all resolved. And I was in the middle of telling you how you can keep your dog occupied for long periods of time by just smearing butter on the roof of its mouth. Um, <laughs> because it'll just stand there for unknown period of time, just going, trying to get the peanut butter off the roof of its mouth. My wife thinks it's cruel. Um, I think it's good for a laugh, but maybe it's not the best thing to do over and over again. But um, it, it's very least it's worth giving a shot so it's an emergency measure emergency method measure it's like i remember reading once about a first time stay-at-home mom with a new baby who um had to do a conference call and she decided it was worth giving the baby um like an entire case of toilet paper to unravel just because she knew it would keep him quiet for the time she needed to do the call. <laughs> and I, I always have sympathy for that kind of thing. Sometimes you just, you need to solve the problem, you know? Oh, you remember those moments so clearly. Yes. <laughs> well, um, uh, now that, 
now that the you're going to be an empty nester too, um, this means that first of all, our day drinking will become less irresponsible. Uh, <laughs> but it will also mean that we can actually get together post COVID and you know and have 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 drinks and dinner with the with this. The Stoddards and the and the Goldbergs. Even yes, though I understand we that. must we must share our woes and and also, you know, fill the void. I want us. I want a new chapter in my life. I want to, you know, put something in this space, and I want a, a new um, horizon. I want to feel positive about it. I've threatened my children with taking a hip hop dance class and sending them some of my moves on video. I think it's time to just you know, be a little crazy in a good way. Yeah, I mean that's why I'm looking at you know mixed martial arts. But um, <laughs> uh, um, anyway, always wonderful to have you on, and um, I hope we'll have you back. We'll certainly have you back when uh, to sort of do the post mortem on the craziness that is going to unfold next month. And um, always lovely to see you. It's great to be with you, Jonah. Um, stay out of the humidity. Um, don't watch any leaf filter ads, and we'll make it. To September. We'll, we'll make Thanks it. Thanks for it's, having me. Keep hope alive. <laughs> okay, so uh, AB has left, uh, presumably to go play with Chief. I'm going to go find out what the hell's going on in Kabul. Um, thank you very much to everybody who had such nice things to say about uh, my Friday solo remnant last week and my um, uh, G-File yesterday. Um, um, it was just really appreciated. Um, the positive feedback I got to both. And um, obviously some of those things we'll be returning to another time. Um, other than that, uh, I, I cannot wait to be done with August and we're almost there. Um, of course, August in DC extends till, you know, first two, three weeks of September, which is unfortunate. Um, but I'm back and uh, I'm throwing myself back into the business now because I have to, though I do uh, want to put people on notice is that, you know, we originally planned to um, do something big for my 20th wedding anniversary, which was technically on Wednesday. Um, I say technically not because it's not actually our wedding anniversary, but because uh, we decided we want to put off any serious recognition of it until we can do some sort of great trip somewhere. And the problem was a getting the kid off the college and b COVID stuff where it's just, it's unpredictable um, and difficult to just figure out where to go when there are still shutdowns and all that kind of stuff. And so there may be some stretch in the nearest future where I disappear again, but it wouldn't be for that long. And again, thanks to everybody for the, the kind words about all of that. Um, um, I'm not going to get too saccharine about the fair Jessica here, um, but uh, I am eternally grateful that she was dumb enough to marry me. So uh, if you haven't become a a paid subscriber or member of the dispatch community, please do. We're going to start, really upping our game in terms of what, what you get for being a member of the dispatch, uh, in the months ahead. Um, we have, uh, really a lot of exciting things, both internally and inward facing and outward facing, um, as some of the business people like to say, um, in store in the months ahead. And, um, we would really love it 
if everyone could, everyone who's sort of sympathetic or at least interested in what we're trying to do or the product that we're products we're putting out there um, and want to see more of it. Uh, if you could become a member, it just enables us to do more, better, faster. And, um, and we would greatly, greatly appreciate it. Um, but I'm trying, I keep thinking there's something else I wanted to tell you people, but it's not like I won't have another opportunity to tell you people something. So um, with that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.